Hey guys, I'm Raf. And I'm James. On today's episode, The Psychiatrist's Guide to The Goldwater Rule. I think Raf Koira is a serial killer. Those poodles are scarily smart. Barry Goldwater was born in Phoenix to a Jewish father who owned a department store and an Episcopalian mother who was a nurse. At his military academy in Virginia, he was an athlete, excelling in football, track, and swimming. When his father became ill and died, he went home to run the family business working his way up from salesman to president of the company, and later expanding nationally. He was ahead of his time hiring African-American employees and providing benefits. When the U.S. entered World War II, Barry Goldwater volunteered and served as an Air Force pilot. Later, he would be instrumental in the founding of the Air Force Academy. After the war, he set his sights on politics, first being elected to city council and later rising the ranks to U.S. senator, and his political career was intriguing. He opposed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. He was the spiritual predecessor of Ronald Reagan, and perhaps, more than anyone, responsible for moving the Republican Party as far right as it is today. But in his later years, he often spoke out against the political machine that he helped to create. He was instrumental in desegregating the military, and lobbied for gay people to serve openly. He opposed Pat Robertson and supported abortion rights and the legalization of medical marijuana. But the reason Barry Goldwater is most interesting to us is because in 1964 he ran for president. The hot-button issue of the election was nuclear weapons. Goldwater was a proponent for more liberal use of nuclear weapons, suggesting they be used in Vietnam and that commanders in the field be allowed to deploy them without presidential confirmation. And Lyndon Johnson's campaign was keen to exploit the extremist position, deploying ads that featured atomic bombs and mushroom clouds. And others struck against Goldwater as well. In 1964, Fact Magazine ran an article entitled The Unconscious of a Conservative, a special issue on the mind of Barry Goldwater. That article included a poll in which 1,189 psychiatrists agreed that Goldwater was psychologically unfit to be president. For the publisher, it ended at the losing end of a lawsuit. For psychiatrists, it resulted in what is now known as the Goldwater Rule. The rule, published in the American Psychiatric Association's Principle of Medical Ethics, holds in part that it is unethical for a psychiatrist to offer a professional opinion on a public figure unless he has personally examined the person and has been given the authority to share that opinion. And then came the era of Donald Trump. Some prominent psychiatrists are now brazenly violating the Goldwater Rule in order to exercise what they see as their duty to warn the public of the dangerous mind of Donald Trump and, in turn, reviving the debate on whether the Goldwater Rule should exist at all. So, Raph. Yes. Do you believe that psychiatrists have a moral imperative to protect the public from people they feel may not be psychiatrically stable to fulfill a certain public role yes okay so you feel like we have a moral obligation given the knowledge that we have and the skills that we are developing to let the public know when we feel like someone is 
not psychiatrically stable. And what do, what do we mean by that? Like, what is stable? Right. So that's, that's the problem. So I do feel like we have, you know, they say with great knowledge comes great responsibility. I don't have great, great knowledge. Okay. So you're off the hook. Yeah. I don't, I don't have great responsibility. But for the rest of us. Yeah. Um, so I, I do feel morally and ethically, you know, we have a duty, not just because we're psychiatrists, but we're human beings, you know, mm-hmm. we have a duty to try to protect the people around us sure. you know, to a reasonable degree. The problem is our own limitations and our own biases. Mm-hmm. So how do you know when your own biases are coloring your judgment? That's the problem is you don't, yeah. you know. Even if your own biases are coloring your judgment, if you have a moral imperative to protect the public, then not acting on your own biases would violate that idea. Right. And that's pretty much the argument that a lot of psychiatrists are making nowadays when they're violating the Goldwater rule in order to do what they think is protecting the public from Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. They mention, some of them, that the psychiatrists during the rise of Hitler didn't speak out. Mm -hmm. And maybe they should have. Maybe Mm -hmm. they could have changed the course of history. Sure, sure. But the problem is, can you diagnose somebody from afar? Mm. I don't think you can. It's I, I, I don't think you can either, but it is certainly extraordinarily tempting where there are public figures who are essentially exactly. textbook cases right. of this or that. And you are, you know, a little, a little part of you is screaming, yeah. oh my goodness, this this guy is certifiable. Right. But certainly nowadays with, you know, social media and the amount of exposure that you have to celebrities, mm-hmm. you know, you get a lot more information. You see them in their element. You see their defense mechanisms and you can get a more comfortable feel about what do you think is going on in their head. Mm-hmm. But it's not quite the same. I don't know about you, but most of the time when I am dealing with a patient who may have a personality disorder. I am very hesitant to actually diagnose them as such. I may put that they have traits of a certain disorder. I may put that they might have some sort of symptomatology that puts them in the realm. For example, we always put cluster B traits, you know. That means that your psychiatrist is thinking that you may have features of borderline personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, but they're not... Or narcissistic. Narcissistic, Mm -hmm. and they're not quite sure... And they don't, they also don't want to label you. So a lot of times we kind of default to that. So I, I find it, it, in some ways, it's interesting. I am quicker to diagnose our president with something than I am to diagnose a patient that I've been seeing maybe for months with something. Why though? Two questions. Why are you so hesitant to diagnose somebody with a personality disorder? And why would you feel more comfortable diagnosing a public figure? So I think actually the the second question rather is easier to answer. The reason why it's easier for me to diagnose a public figure with something like a personality disorder is because it's precisely because I don't know them. I'm not seeing them in a real clinical setting. And to me, they're a caricature. So all I know about a public figure, what they choose to portray, I, I don't see them in their quieter moments. I don't see them with their family. I see what they're choosing to put out on Twitter or wherever. So it's almost like you're evaluating a caricature, which makes it easier. And the reason to answer your first question, why I personally hesitate to diagnose anyone with a personality disorder, is that for a lot of patients, that's the kiss of death. It's definitely going to affect the quality of care they receive going forward, not only because 
providers who are not in our field will read those types of diagnoses and their judgment will immediately be colored Mm -hmm. and the type of treatment they provide will immediately change, but also people in our own field, you know, carry inherent biases towards patients who carry these types of diagnoses. So I don't want to condemn this patient who, you know, I'm not quite even sure if there's overwhelming evidence, you know. I have the same instincts, but I'll give two notable exceptions. One time the patient's narcissistic personality was so obvious and it was basically more than textbook. Mm-hmm. You know, I had no choice. You know, it was, it was obvious. Like there's no way you could get that one wrong. Yeah. And it, it was important to kind of the clinical outcome. So I put that diagnosis down. The other exception, which is much broader is borderline personality disorder. I think it's important to identify it, diagnose it, and to tell the patient that that's Mm. the appropriate diagnosis. And there's two schools of thought on this. I talked to a psychologist recently about one of our common patients. And, you know, I basically wanted to say, because this patient had been diagnosed with everything under the sun, as patients with borderline personalities tend to be, Mm. I basically wanted her to know that I was revising the diagnosis and I wanted to know, like, are you doing DBT skills training, that kind of thing. So what Raf is saying is that, you know, part of the reason why this might be important is because the diagnosis in this case does guide treatment. And so, for example, if you have a patient with borderline personality disorder, you would want to deploy a certain type of cognitive behavioral therapy, a subset of it called dialectic behavioral therapy, which has been shown to be beneficial for patients with borderline personality disorder. And just, I want to hear the rest of what you have to say, but I also think it's important to note that for a long time and continuing today, there is a large amount of practitioners who say that not only borderline personality disorder, but personality disorders in general can't be treated. But we know that that's not true. That's not true. Yeah. And so her response to me was that she doesn't, you know, use labels with patients and she she wouldn't tell her if that's what she thought the diagnosis was. She would just do whatever she thought was, you know, helpful to her, which I think is great because it seemed like she was employing uh, an eclectic form of psychotherapy, which mm-hmm. we were just talking about off the mic before, which I think is important. On the other hand, however, there is a difference. So dialectical behavioral therapy has long been the standard of care for uh, to treat borderline personality disorder. But there is a whole different school of thought. There's a psychiatrist named John Gunderson, who is a professor at Harvard University and who some have called the father of borderline personality disorder. And he's developed a different form of treatment, which he holds is superior or at least not inferior to DBT, which he calls uh, good psychiatric management. (laughs) That almost sounds like a... uh... It almost sounds like a passive aggressive. Uh, it is. It, I know what you're going to say. <laughs> yeah. and that's exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. So, and that's what I'm doing with my patients. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the basic principles of good psychiatric management and borderline personality disorder is explaining the diagnosis to the patient mm-hmm. so that they can understand what they're fighting against, mm-hmm. you know, and why they feel the way they do. And then, you know, other features are what you were going to say is it's what it's a passive aggressive what. I, I was going to say it's almost like a passive aggressive attack on uh, not good psychiatric on not good psychiatric. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's pretty much what it is, in yeah. my opinion. If you look at what the rest of it features, mm-hmm. you know, which is pretty much you know consistent follow up, listening to the patient, you mm-hmm. know, a lot of things that 
you know, good practitioners would already be doing. Sure, sure. Um, but that's so do you see the the you know the difference in the two approaches? One yeah. approach is don't put the label on them. Mm-hmm. The other approach is you absolutely have to tell them what they're suffering from in order for them to get better. And that's mm-hmm. what I do. So that was the, this whole long diatribe is to tell you that when I identify that a patient has borderline personality disorder, I make it clear to them that that's my opinion. Mm-hmm. And then oftentimes it's met with resistance because of the negative connotation of borderline personality disorder. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to do a whole episode about this, so I won't go into too much detail. Yeah. But in my estimation i have not had one patient that i told that i thought they had borderline personality disorder that didn't eventually come to identify with that diagnosis Mm. a lot of them the ones who were aware of the negative connotations were very resistant Mm -hmm. and it would take weeks and weeks of talking and talking about it until they would come to me without me mentioning it and saying you know what you're right Mm -hmm. you know this is what i'm suffering from it's interesting it's a it's a very interesting thought you you bring up point you bring up you know, in many ways, I think that the last frontier of psychiatry in terms of abolishing stigma will be personality disorders. We're getting to a point now where even substance abuse disorders mm-hmm. are accepted, you know, and seen by the majority of providers as something that can be treated. Right. And something that people can move on from and grow from. And a neurological problem. Exactly. A neurological problem with a sound basis. Mm-hmm. It's. It, I wonder if years from now, you know, after the stigma of substance use is, you know, mostly eradicated, if we'll still be hesitant to tell our patients, you know, I do believe that you have narcissistic personality disorder yeah. or something, you know, and you're right. If if you, if you're not letting the patient know what you're working to treat, then you can't get buy-in, right, from them. Well, I mean, you, they you see them once a month, maybe for however mm-hmm. long. You know, they are themselves 24-7 for their entire lives. Like, (laughs) they have to do the work if they're going to get better. Yeah. You know, and how can you get them to do the the right work Mm -hmm. if they don't understand why they're doing it or how it's going to help them? But going back to what we were talking about before, you know, I'm curious as to why you believe without doing a face-to-face, you feel like you have enough to truly diagnose someone with a with either personality disorder or anything else you know i i don't think you have you don't think yeah exactly i don't even if you really really think so even Mm -hmm. if the person is a caricature you don't really know exactly you know what i mean because you don't know where that behavior is coming from right you don't know if it's inherent to their character or if they're reacting to something else exactly right and for example, with antisocial personality disorder, they essentially had to have conduct disorder, mm-hmm. you know, you know, as they were a teenager, you're not going to get that history. You may yeah. not get it even if you identify, even if you interview the patient, mm-hmm. but you're not likely to get that history yeah. in somebody who is only in the public spotlight as an adult. That's yeah. an obvious version of it, but I think that that is a good example. I think another thing that you have to keep in mind, especially with public figures, is that like we talked about. You're seeing what these people choose to put out there. Right. So before I did this, you know, I actually was in politics for a little bit. I won't say where or doing what, but I will say that I was fortunate enough to meet a good number of politicians who are still very active. Mm-hmm. And the sometimes, not always, the sometimes the gulf between their public personas and their personalities when they perceive themselves as being in a a secure or comfortable uh, situation, sometimes that gulf is gigantic. And sometimes it's not. 
sometimes the personality that you're seeing is, is, you know, it's seems to be like what their actual personality right. is. Sometimes you realize that, that this person is an excellent actor, yeah. first and foremost. Right. So how can you really diagnose someone if right. all you're exactly. seeing is that facade? That facade, right. Yeah. For, for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the example of Barry Goldwater, not to cut you off, but I think the example of Barry Goldwater well, shows you that people are more than that. People mm-hmm. are more than their party line. And later in life, they may mm-hmm. do things that surprise you mm-hmm. only because you were only basing your assumptions on a portion of their personality that they are, they've identified as being popular, maybe with a certain yeah. base. And, and, and in his case, it's not just later in life. Even before he entered the political fray, he was held positions that would be considered very kind of liberal, very mm-hmm. democratic leaning, you know, providing benefits to his employees, giving jobs to African-American employees before it was socially acceptable. Mm-hmm. He desegregated the Arizona National Guard before the U.S. military was desegregated. Yeah. And then most famously, he came to hold positions that, you know, are very, what are associated with very right-leaning positions, Mm -hmm. you know, like the liberal use of atomic weapons, kind of that hawkish kind of behavior. Yeah, people are more than one thing. People can have two contradictory ideas at the same time. And it's it's interesting. But my question to you now is, Mm -hmm. so on the one hand, you do feel that psychiatrists have a moral obligation to warn the public when they believe that someone is leading them astray. And on the other hand, you believe that you cannot make an accurate diagnosis from afar. So how do you, how do those things gel? I don't know. <laughs> that, no, I feel the same way. That's the right question. And yeah. it's, it's hard. You know, it's, it's, it's difficult. It creates cognitive dissonance in my mm-hmm. head, you yeah. know, because you don't know, especially when we take biases into account, you know, mm-hmm. if the person does things that you find, you know, if they hold positions that you find unacceptable, you're likely to hate them. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And to want to, you know, unconsciously only see the negatives and the mm-hmm. things that reinforce your opinion of them. Mm-hmm. It's very hard, you know, to know whether you're being objective or not. And I think that's why, you know, so much of what we do is examining our own countertransference, right? Mm-hmm. Because even just in the course of our day to day, we're interacting with people who we have an instinctual, we may have an instinctual aversion to, and we might not know why. And it's incredibly important to take a step back and ask ourselves with the help of others, why am I responding to this person this way? I think that's what separates us from people who don't have this training, is we're able to interrogate our own biases. We're trained to interrogate our own biases in a way that I feel over the course of years that I feel like normal people may not be able right. to do. We, hopefully we're supposed to get better than the average person at doing it, but we're still human. Yeah, you know exactly. I mean? So yeah. maybe 10% better, but we're still human. And we still know? have blind spots. Exactly. And, yeah. And it's hard to undo a, you know, a lifetime of bias with a few sessions of reflection. Right. And I'll, so we need to mention that a lot of the inspiration for this episode comes from an article that we read on Lawfare Blog by a psychiatrist named Alan Stone. He's a former president of the American Psychiatric Association, and he was the only voting member who voted against the adoption of the Goldwater Rule when it was Mm. adopted. Mm. What was his rationale at that time? So that's an excellent question because it's central to his article. Mm. His rationale was that he didn't feel the American Psychiatric Association to infringe upon the freedom of speech mm. of psychiatrists. I see. So it's interesting in, in his argument, you know, it's not a moral argument. 
it's not a response. It's not an argument that deals with responsibility. It's simply free speech argument. That was the core of why he voted that way. Mm. And he, he, but he goes on to say that he never violated the Goldwater rule mm. because of what we're saying mm. that he thinks it's impossible to diagnose somebody from afar, from afar, you know, and this is a guy who's probably smarter and definitely much more experienced than we are. It, it raises an interesting point, you know, so, so if we're, if we're to take those two somewhat opposed viewpoints together, you can't make an accurate diagnosis from afar and you have essentially what you might call a duty to warn, but the public, as opposed to mm -hmm. the target of homicidal ideation, right. it, it feels to me like a natural kind of thought experiment that comes out of this is you're treating a patient for years. You make what you feel is an accurate diagnosis, and then that patient becomes a public figure. That's interesting. Then do you, would you then, because that brings up its own. You still can't, because the second part of the Goldwater rule is you have to have permission to, mm -hmm. you know, to, to, to say what your assessment is. Plus, you know, HIPAA, you know, yeah. there's, there's lots of overlying rules and statutes that mm -hmm. would prevent you from doing that. If you really thought that this person would do irreparable harm to society, would you toss those out the window and, and do what you thought needed to be done? I would. Yeah. I, I mean, if it was that, you know, and I went to law school, I practiced yeah. law. Um, but when it comes to, you know, doing things that I think are right, I rely less on what the law tells me to do and more on my human gut instincts, you know. The few the few legal classes I took at NYU as an undergraduate, although they were law school classes, the few classes that I took, I feel like one of the central tenets, one of the central ideas that I took away from those classes is that, yes, law is based on precedent, but at the same time, if you read a lot of Supreme Court decisions, it seems like laws stem just as much from the morals and the mores of the day mm -hmm. as true. they do from precedent. Very and true. and if if there is no precedent, one thing you might rely on is the average person's idea of what would be moral or just in this situation. Yeah. So I feel like, yeah, it's... Uh, so you're, you're touching on something called natural law, mm -hmm. which I'm sure you studied at some point. I, the The... Term is vaguely familiar, but yes, right. I, yeah. So the idea being that there's a kind of law that by nature of being alive, of being human, that's more fundamental than any of the laws that can be passed by governments or, mm -hmm. you know, professional associations, mm -hmm. you know. And there's debate, you know, people have debate on whether they believe that that's true. I strongly believe that's true. Yeah. You know? Yeah. We're all human before we are american or russian or you know or one race or another race you mm -hmm. know and not just human we're all alive on the planet earth mm -hmm. which is another argument altogether i and i feel like you know as um as we advance you know in society i feel like there are different types of justice that people are exploring in terms of how how people can be made whole after something bad happens to them. In our system today is you break a law, you're tried, you're sentenced, and your punishment is 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 just that. But there's a different I feel like a very hot topic these days. It's the type of justice where the family of the victim might like meet with the perpetrator and the perpetrator is offered a chance to say they're sorry and it's more of a holistic approach to justice. So this type of justice that I'm talking about is called restorative justice. It has more to do 
with making the victim or the victim's family whole again than it does with punishing the perpetrator. And the reason, the, the kind of thrust behind this whole idea is that the criminal isn't just someone who rationally decided to commit this crime. The, the idea behind it is that the criminal is someone who, because of the forces placed upon them by society, was put in a position where this crime was kind of a natural behavioral outcropping of their circumstances. And the idea is that instead of punishing that person for this crime, which may have been just a product of, of their circumstances, the idea is to make the the victim whole. And you do that with victim reparation, offender responsibility, and then making changes on a community level. Wow. So you kind of, instead of focusing on that person and saying, you stole this, you go to jail, you focus on the community and you say, well, who are these people who are stealing these things? Are they hungry? Let's give them food and then maybe we can prevent them from stealing things in the first place. So all that is just to say, there's a way to view justice that is separate from the laws and regulations that we have on file. And certainly I think there's a way to responsibly act on your morals that doesn't necessarily work within or maybe works in tandem with, you know, the laws as we know them. And so it's interesting that I feel like we both, we both believe that if we were in that situation, we would feel the need to speak up and, and warn people. And we're not alone. You know, our our country has a long history of social disobedience Mm -hmm. and a lot of, excuse me, our our country has a, has a long history of civil disobedience. And a lot of the rights that we appreciate today that we enjoy today are because of people who were willing to violate the law. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Now, um, one thing I want to mention, going back to the freedom of speech thing, uh, Dr. Stone mentions that there is not a strong freedom of speech argument, uh, like li- like a literally constitutional argument, because the American Psychiatric Association is uh, a private organization. Mm. And for example, you know, nobody ha- no psychiatrist has to be a member. And there's one famous psychiatrist who resigned in response to the, the strengthening of the Goldwater Rule. Mm-hmm. And, and also, I want to mention that we call it the Goldwater Rule. It's not really, well, it's not really a hard and fast rule. Like, so, for example, if I were to take to Twitter and say, I think that uh, Michael J. Fox has depression, you know, it, I wouldn't be fired from my job. I wouldn't be asked to leave the APA. No. You know. However, I want to say one thing that kind of goes against that, which is that there are state laws, for example, the New Jersey Board of Medical Examiners has pretty much the Goldwater Rule in place. Mm. You know, you can't be a psychiatrist or a physician without being subject to the rules of the New Jersey Board of Medical Examiners. So there's a much stronger case, not for the American Psychiatric Association's version, but for the, you know, the government's version that that's unconstitutional. Are these laws similar to libel and slander laws? It's different. It's more about, you know, the ethics of practicing medicine. Yeah. And I think also, you know, one of the tricky things is that there are libel and slander laws. Mm -hmm. And if you're saying something that is completely not based on evidence, Mm -hmm. someone is definitely within their rights to say, you are defaming me wrongly, and I'm going to take legal action against you. Generally speaking, though, opinion is not subject to libel or slander Mm. so it's only if you're stating that it's a fact Mm -hmm. which is kind of tricky because by virtue of saying that you're a physician you know you're kind of saying that your opinion is a fact yeah you know yeah so if i were to say 
If I were to go into the media and I were to say, I think Raph Koira is a serial killer, <laughs> you couldn't, you couldn't take legal action. But if I said Raph Koira is a, is a serial killer, you could take action. Is that the difference? It's not a matter of being able to take action. It's a matter of the likelihood of success mm. in the lawsuit. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Even the way you said it makes it sound like a fact, even though you said, I think. Because mm. a lot of people have tried that. They've tried to say, my opinion is, insert this fact. Yeah. You know, that's still a fact. Mm. You know what I mean? Even though you're trying to hide behind the, the cloud of opinion. Yeah. And of course, being a public figure makes you subject to more, you know, attack. More, more. in other words, the person, you know, saying something about a public figure enjoys a higher level of constitutional protection. That's really the point of the First Amendment freedom of speech, mm -hmm. which is that we need to be able to criticize, you know, primarily our governors, you know, yeah. but also, you know, members of the public. And I think it's this all like kind of borders on the idea of, you know, humorists being shielded too, right from, you know, making pointed political statements in a humorous way that if said more bluntly or without being satirical, would certainly be slanderous or, right. or libelous, mm -hmm. but you know it's it and it kind of borders it kind of borders on that. Yeah, but and it's interesting because um, there is a certain powerful individual in our government who is trying to kind of change the libel laws mm -hmm. to to make it easier to sue somebody for a libel or slander. Mm -hmm. But I have to mention that that is antithetical to the United States of America. Mm -hmm. The basic principle of our government is that we have to be able to criticize our ruler, you mm -hmm. know, our, our government, you know, overseers. Sure. It's the basic founding principle of this country. Mm -hmm. it, it's stated in the Declaration of Independence. The one core principle of our existence is that we will not be treated arbitrarily by a king and we will have the right to speak against that king. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. God bless America. <laughs> it's a it's a really interesting topic and it's it's one that uh I feel like is more relevant relevant today than ever. You know, it's remarkable to me to a certain extent that there aren't more psychiatrists who aren't more vocal mm -hmm. um right. these days. Well, because of this rule. You know, obviously in the sixties there were. Yeah. You yeah. know. So overall, Raph, do you think it's a do you think it's a good rule overall? I think it's a good practice. Yeah. But I have serious doubts. I don't think it's a good rule. Yeah. I don't think it's the place of the American Psychiatric Association to limit our freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. And even if you hold that the APA is a private organization, there are government entities that are holding us to the same standard. You know, I think that I don't think that we should be diagnosing people from afar. Yeah. But I also don't think that our government should be telling us that we can't. Exactly. I mean, we, I think as physicians, we are very um, sensitive to any limits that are placed on the way that we mm -hmm. speak and the way that we can speak with patients specifically. For example, I believe it's been repealed, but for many years, there was a law in Florida that you could not even ask if a patient a if they had a gun. Yeah. And obviously, this law was the product of lobbying by the NRA and mm -hmm. other, another, you know, interests in that regard. And while I can see their reasoning, to me, that is just hilarious. You're going to prevent me from asking. You don't want to talk about it. You don't want right. me to say that. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm, agree I'm agreeing with you. I'm shaking my head because I think it's crazy. Yeah, you're, you're going to prevent me 
from doing my job, well, a large part of our job is, is risk stratifying when patients make a suicidal or homicidal statement. And obviously, a huge portion of that is determining, do they have a gun? Is the gun safely stored? You know, have they used the gun in the past? How many guns do they own? Are these guns registered? And if I'm not allowed to ask those questions and get that information, I'm you're asking me to do my job with my hands tied behind my right. back. And I'll point out that, you know, my saying that I don't think is a good rule is opposite to what the American Psychiatric Association has recently said, because in response to these these openly public violations of the Goldwater Rule, they actually amended the Goldwater Rule to make it even more strict and hmm. to reinforce the fact that they, you know, that the American Psychiatric Association believes that it's a good and important rule. So how is the rule strengthened? A lot of people interpreted the rule as saying that you couldn't diagnose somebody from afar. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now apparently the APA has made it clear that you shouldn't give any sort of professional opinion on a public figure that you haven't examined. How is that different? Well, it's different because theoretically you might be able to say like, yeah, I can't come to an accurate diagnosis about this person. However, based on some of the things that they're displaying, I could say that they might be dangerous because of this impulsivity, mm -hmm. because of this lack of remorse, you know, gotcha. and still theoretically not violate the rule. But now the APA is kind of making it clear that even that violates the rule. So really, it's kind of making us completely silent on yeah. any well, subject. Theoretically, you can talk on an educational level about, mm. you know, certain things. Yeah. But it's hard, you know, you know, it's it's going to have a chilling effect even more than it already has. Exactly. Exactly. You know, in, in, in training, it's very common to take a fictional character, someone from literature, someone from popular culture mm -hmm. and psychoanalyze that character right. as a training exercise. Similarly, in training, it's common to take public figures who exhibit, you know, this trait or that trait and as a training exercise use them so you know yeah but it's so what's your point to me it's that is just evidence of how kind of ridiculously far that decision is going right but if you're it's a fictional person or even if it's a real person but we're just talking amongst ourselves we're not violating their rights essentially okay. we're not this mm. isn't a real person that we're diagnosing and we're not saying it to the public in general yeah yeah you know so it doesn't have that same level of you know mm. dangerousness yeah who knows maybe we'll be looking back and kicking ourselves 20 years from now, depending on how history unfolds. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be saying we should have, we should have not, uh, we, we should have done this differently. We shall see. Yeah. Another really interesting thing that uh, Dr. Stone pointed out in the article was that there was a political motivation for the adoption of the Goldwater rule. So he suggests that the APA, the American Psychiatric Association was pressured into adopting this rule by the American Medical Association and that the American Medical Association had long been a very conservative organization that backed Republican candidates, mm. while as the American Psychiatric Association, psychiatrists tended then and still tend now to be much more liberal. Mm. And it was kind of an embarrassment to the American Medical Association that the psychiatrists, you know, spoke out in this way. Hmm. And that there was possibly a political motive for the adoption of this rule. Which changes the conversation entirely because if the the rule itself is biased, yeah, it doesn't matter what your biases are. Right. Because exactly. you're operating under, you know, a biased system. Right. Exactly. So, That's something that you should take into account when considering, you know, this rule. It may yeah. not have happened 
if it wasn't for the political motivation that forced it to happen in the yeah. first place. Or maybe not, you know. Maybe yeah. The APA, you know, strengthened the rule recently. I don't know what kind of, you know, pressures may or may not have been present at this point. Yeah. You know, it would be interesting to find out. But yeah. obviously we don't know enough people to know, <laughs> to know what happened. But if somebody knows, it would be great to find out. I think, to be quite honest with you, if I just had to guess, I, I'm sure they're just reacting right. to maybe even the pressure they feel within themselves mm-hmm. to speak out. And right. in many ways, this is kind of almost like a, a an auto-regulation thing, I yeah, think. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, no, you, you, you are feeling increasingly a moral obligation to do something, which you realize on a certain level is not professional and against right. certain ethical tenets that you hold dear. And so then it's easier... To just come out and say, you know what? No, we're doubling down on this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we can't we can't speak out on this. Yeah. So. So this past weekend, I had the honor of presenting at the Dominican Medical Society's annual conference. Woohoo! And that's one of the reasons that we're doing this episode because mm. part of my presentation was on uh, ethical physician conduct in the media, and I said while I was up there, you know when I got to the Goldwater rule that, you know, we could talk about this for hours. Yeah. So then I thought, you know, we probably should, you know. Yeah. If not hours, at least, you know, half an hour or something like exactly, that. Exactly, yeah. Uh, but I want to give a, a big thank you to the Dominican Medical Society, especially to Dr. Jacobo Pena and Dr. Jose Agores for inviting me, for presenting me with a really awesome plaque. It's really beautiful. You know, it was I've a, seen it. It is beautiful. Yeah, it was a great conference there were really great speakers i by far was the least qualified (laughs) person there but it was really a great conference and if anybody has an opportunity to go you really should you know make an effort to go i tried to go they wouldn't let me in not dominican (laughs) they just kicked me out there is no there is no uh (laughs) racial um criteria for going to the conference a lot of the speakers and a lot of the attendees were from various uh ethical backgrounds but it's very cool. Congratulations on that, Raph. That's a, that's a big achie- achievement, a big accomplishment. The plaque is beautiful. And uh, yeah, good yeah, job. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I am ready to deliver our top five tips with regards to the Goldwater Rule. Tip number one. The Goldwater Rule is that it's unethical for psychiatrists to give a professional opinion about a public figure unless they've examined them in person and that person gives them consent to do so. Number two. The Goldwater Rule came in response to an article in 1964 in Fact Magazine about Barry Goldwater, then candidate for presidency, in which 1,189 psychiatrists spoke out to say that they believed he was unfit to be president of the United States. Number three, the APA has recently doubled down on the Goldwater Rule, making it even harder for psychiatrists to speak publicly about public figures with regards to psychopathology, or their mental health. Number four, you should know that there are ramifications beyond the purview of the APA which may carry stricter punishment. For example, there are state laws that prevent you from doing the same things that the APA's version of the Goldwater Rule says. Number five, making a diagnosis from afar is a perilous endeavor. And for reasons that we've discussed in this episode, it might be an impossible task. We like to end our episode, as always, by saying that if you're struggling with anything, whether it be depression, anxiety, substance abuse, we want you to know that help is out there. Don't be afraid to seek it. 
Um, you do not have to go through this alone. Depression, anxiety, substance abuse, they're not moral failings, they're neurological conditions, and you can get help. We also like to say thank you so much if you uh, have gone on a, onto iTunes and left us a review, or if you've tweeted about the program, and it really helps us out. We're, uh, we're a scrappy, grassroots upstart in the podcast landscape, and uh, any help we can get from you guys, we really appreciate. So if you like the podcast, leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does, uh, does us a huge favor. So... Until next time, adios, peace.